Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I am not yet vaccinated. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I've been reading about schools in our area returning to in-person instruction. Professional development requires online dialogue and reflection. So lean in as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Abbey Ale from the Omegang Brewery. Brewery. Might be Omegang. I don't know. And I couldn't find a pronunciation guide. Oh, I hadn't considered gong as the pronunciation. I did assume gang, but I realize now that's an assumption. Thank you for pointing yeah, I don't know. that out. Well, I couldn't. I don't know, man. I don't know. I just, I don't like making assumptions I'm not aware of. Like, that's, it's good to at least know that I'm making them. Uh, I got a little bit of um, guidance from our beer vizier uh, ahead of time that I should apparently be drinking this beer from a round glass. So I have I've procured one for today instead of my normal my normal Stein. He also says that it should be drunk at a uh, particular temperature, but I don't know what that temperature is, and I didn't do the research to find out. Uh, but conveniently, we unplugged our refrigerator in our basement, so this is cellar cooled, not refrigerated. Oh, aren't you just the fanciest of pants this month? Well, I've got a vizier telling me things, so I you know might but, as I mean, well. That benefiting from his wisdom and expertise is the point. What are we doing today, researcher? Images and animations offer tools to visualize our content, but must strike a balance between ease of use and ability to prompt thinking. We read a study that tested the impact of prior knowledge and multimedia format on learning outcomes. Later, we read a case study about an administrator navigating a toxic district culture. Guest Jen Bennis joins us to examine the flaws in how the author presents the story and how we can approach leadership from a more just foundation. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read Prerequisite Knowledge and Time of Testing and Learning with Animations and Static Pictures, Evidence for the Expertise Reversal Effect. This was written by Tim Cool in Learning and Instruction. Published in 2021. I queued this paper because we're in the X, how many months has this been that we've been in the pandemic now? Yeah, so we're on our 11th month of pandemic circumstance teaching. And if, you, if you've listened to the show throughout that time, you've noticed that we've kind of shifted our topics to try to focus on things that are, that are relevant to what we've been doing over the course of the past year. Um, uh, and also the, the expertise re- reversal effect has come up in past episodes, and that's just interesting. I, it's something that I haven't known that much about until the last year or two. And so I like learning more about the expertise reversal effect. So let's start there. Uh, the expertise reversal effect is this phenomenon where if someone actually has competency and um, efficacy within some kind of domain of skill or knowledge that you can actually uh, you can actually hurt their performance uh, by overloading them with extra uh, redundant uh, non-helpful information. You can over-inform someone who knows what they're doing. 
Yeah, and so I think last time we talked about it, I used an analogy that felt good, so I'm going to repeat it now. And that's sort of like if you're talking to somebody who is a, an adept basketball player and they're dribbling down the court and you start giving them suggestions about the fundamentals of how to dribble, you're going to actually impede their ability to execute complex basketball tasks because they already know how to dribble and all of that is in automatic memory. And so drawing their attention to it just reduces their cognitive resources available for the other basketball basketball tasks they should actually be focusing on. And so you're reducing their ability to do something because they shouldn't be thinking about the things that are being made explicit and salient. And uh, this is contextualized with in, in this multimedia study by providing different models to students. Well, if we have a model that is static, it's just a picture the students have to do some work to interpret it. But if the model is dynamic, if it's an animation, there's a lot going on. The student's going to have to puzzle out, wait, is that is that new information? Is that old information? Is that different from what I already know? Uh, and so they, the question they ask is, do, do these different uh, models uh, have – how does it interact with this, uh, this uh, expertise reversal effect? And can we mitigate that effect? Yeah, and there was, there was a couple of interesting pieces in how they're analyzing the differences between pictures and animations, like static pictures and animations, that I just, it was something that I hadn't spent time thinking about before. Uh, so like one of them is an animation is is transient, right? Like things are changing over time just by its very nature. And so it can make it harder to identify some of the individual details. However, being able to move, there are, there are plenty of instances within various content areas where the movement is part of the time target and so balancing the the strengths and trade-offs of an animation versus a static image is is part of what they were really trying to study here is is what's 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 superior from an animation in that you can explicitly demonstrate and communicate dynamic elements was the vocabulary they used. And is that, does that, does that merit their use when some of the non-dynamic information, some of just the, the other qualities of what you're trying to communicate um, the transience of some of that information, is it worth the trade off? And I just, I'd never really, I never specifically considered the difference between the two image, the two formats that way. And so I found it really useful. Like working through their their experimental design, I there I I was intrigued by most of their experimental design. Just yeah, and and then it's kind of a challenge here because there's actually a lot to it, and I don't want to go through all of it. They they chopped up a big group of students into a bunch of different groups and looked at a bunch of different things. And uh, instead of going through all of that, we'll just talk about the ones we find interesting. The so the there was another idea or a, like a, a plausible argument for using static images versus animations that I could hear myself making. Like I'd never given it that thought, but I could hear myself making that argument if I was put in the position to think about it that way. And that was the extra effort, the extra cognitive energy that we put into making the inferences and drawing the understandings from a static image could be productive struggle. Like that could be productive energy that makes the learning more durable. That is a plausible argument. And so, yes, we don't want to make the animation. It's so easy. Back to that phrase that you loved in the previous episode, Lawrence, uh, the, the um, narrative seduction of it. It's so beautifully and elegantly animated that I don't really have to think about it. I can just take it at face value and move on. We're talking like it's true. And so it's I, just, I paused, like, should I put in an asterisk? Because that's not what they found. 
it's not completely counterintuitive to what we expected, but it's not completely consistent with what we expected. And so we don't need to go through all their experimental design, but I felt like there was three questions that they really sought to answer across their design, which was really, is there a difference between static pictures and animations, which the previous literature says there is, but they did it again. And does the prior preparation matter or impact their experience? And then does the learning get more durable? So the first one is just really well supported with the literature. We don't need to spend a lot of time there. Animations produce better outcomes compared to static static images, which uh, I have to admit hurts 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 my heart a little bit just because I have a, just a personal distaste for it for animations and videos. Um, but uh, they did produce better outcomes for students. And uh, one thing that's worth pointing out is the details of the animation they used were different than where I started in my mind's eye. Um, the animation here, you can basically imagine it to be just a GIF. It's just an animated GIF uh, of a planet moving in a diagram as opposed to just a planet being still in that same diagram. So this isn't like an animated video. This isn't an extended, you know, four minute long instructional video. This is an animation. This is just a brief moving GIF. Yeah, this is just a model, a model of a phenomenon that, yeah, it's not a tutorial video. It's just how do we depict this to our kids? Well, we can have a, a, a little a little animation of a planet going around the sun, or we could have a picture of a planet going around the sun with an orbit and some things highlighted. But yeah, so really the, the takeaway for me, if I'm imagining putting this in my biology classroom, especially like in my, my college class, it's really molecularly focused. I think about like the function of ATP and it turns like a wheel. And I'm trying to imagine how many times did I show them ATP actually moving versus how many times did I say, here's the wheel, imagine it turning. I should have shown them more turning wheels. Like I need to find somewhere where they can see it turning because that really matters for what they can extract, like the understanding they can extract from that experience. Um, so if, if the movement matters, and that's not necessarily always true, but if the movement matters, we've got to find a way to show them that movement. <clears throat> Correction. I actually meant ATP synthase in that story. For me that I have done work in the past to find some pretty decent animations, but I, I haven't been doing that. I've been rely I've been, how do I say sort of resting on the ones that I have. So when I did this, well, I couldn't find a good animation. So I'm using this still for this phenomenon because I've, you know, I I've done all of this work for my courses at one point, you know, several years ago and I found some, you know, maybe I'm satisfied with like 60% of the phenomenon is animations and 40% of it is stills. Uh, I shouldn't just rest because the, quote, curriculum is complete. I should go back and continue to search until good animations for these other things exist. And maybe they don't exist, but that doesn't mean I should just be okay with that. So come on, get off of your butt and go do the work and find good models for your science phenomenon that's super abstract and needs to be scaffolded. Come on, you know better. Uh, so, you know, I... I I don't, my heart doesn't hurt, but I, you know, a kick in the butt every now and then to do what you know is right is is good for us. Yeah, and you're you're a little more stoic among the two of us anyway. The, and also remember to afford yourself grace, right? Like we are all doing our best. We are thrust into circumstances we did not predict nor nor deserve. So give yourself grace. We're making progress, but keep making progress. Yeah. Uh, so then the second one was about. Uh, so okay, okay, we've got. What about this load business? What about this idea of like having the, the expertise effect? What about um, uh, 
how much information do you give the kids? Is that going to get in the way of what they understand? So um, in some in, – in the – those that designed this had mentioned that there have been studies where they screen their participants for their prior knowledge ahead of time and then sort them into different groups. But that's not what this study did. They took the, the, the uh, students, uh, these were college students, uh, distributed them, and then they treated one with prior or prerequisite knowledge lessons, and then they did not – uh, give those lessons to the other group. So they created uh, a difference in prior knowledge within those two groups, uh, which is different than what has been done in the research base and is an uh, interesting note of uh, addition to, to this exploration. So the results were the spot where the expertise reversal effect really came in and became visible uh, because it did matter. And there were some students, especially with the static images, who, if they had low prerequisite knowledge, that prior training allowed them to um, to learn at a comparable rate to the high prerequisite knowledge students. And so it fixed a problem is sort of how in my head I like operationalize that is if I use these, if I use these image, these images instead of animations with students who don't have the prerequisite knowledge to interpret that image, I can get them ready to interpret the image and then it will at least not be that bad. But for the students who did have the prerequisite knowledge to interpret that still image, it got in their way and their performance got worse. Yeah. So it, it was if they did not have uh, sufficient prior knowledge of the material, the animations were better. If they did have sufficient prior knowledge of the material, the static images were better. So maybe this is maybe this is not for Tate, but this is my like overriding my overriding takeaway across all of the groups was that animations without prior training is the best. MK. That was like my that's what I remember from the takeaway. And so the so the prior train. So if you're going to give if you're going to front load is like front load is a phrase we haven't said yet. But in my head, that's what I hear a lot in working in like the education. So like we got to front load this. We got to give a, a lecture before we actually have this do this activity or we've got to like give them a vocab sheet before we have the conversation or whatever. Like front loading is how I kind of operationalized this prerequisite knowledge idea in this study. And so if I'm going to front load. I need to give them a static image because the animation will get in their way, but we shouldn't be front loading. So, so like, because that only helps some some students. So if we just use the animation and don't front load, then we get like, we get one of the highest outcomes and nobody gets hurt. So, uh, and what's interesting is that really, if I really want to do this, right. I don't front load. I give them an animation. We interpret it together. And then later, after that experience, I give them a static image and I, they ask them to tell me what the hell is going on with it. Uh, because that's actually what I should be doing because we should be scaffolding. We should be scaffolding through abstract experiences. So you have the first, the animated one, uh, where I, I get to just experience concretely. I get to sense what is happening. And then I get to infer my way through the static one where I'm used, I, I'm getting some stimuli information, but I'm also filling in the gaps with what I have in my head. And then I have them create a damn model where you tell me what it's supposed to look like. Uh, it's a really, this is really like, it's sort of a, it's sort of like, if you, if you only do one thing, do this first one, 
But honestly, we should be scaffing our kids through this abstract uh, development of the ideas. So we should be giving them many opportunities to interact with the material in an increasingly concrete to abstract formation so that they are capable to achieve mastery with the concept. So it's kind of not even really – It's, a, it's a, I'm – I know that there are teachers out there who either are or feel that they are in a situation where they don't have time to actually work with all of that through their kids. And so if you feel or you are in that situation, go with the animation. And don't front load it, which is great news because that gives you time back. Like, how often do we get research results that say spend time on something else? Like, what a wonderful, what a wonderful finding. So, like, don't bother, don't bother front loading and then animate the stuff when there's something in the dynamic action that matters, like movement, like change over time. Like the, if there's some element that is about change is about is dynamic, show it to them. And you're like, well, I'm giving them this image, this still image, and they don't get it. So I got to preload them. Right. So don't preload them, show it to them and let them explore it in the way it should be interpreted, which is in a dynamic format. And then you can be efficient with your time and have the best outcome with your students. I feel like this is good news. This is good news for everybody and is like a really squarely positioned um, piece of evidence to move away from front loading, which I, I think is something we need to consider like broadly also. Uh, yeah, Th- that's some pretty good shoulds there. Reconsider front loading on a regular basis. Use animations if available. Uh, and the last the last piece that this is one that I don't like as much, but it was definitely part of their findings is they looked at the uh, durability over time. That argument of the productive struggle means that they're going to retain it longer. They didn't see that. It wasn't in their results. Like squarely, definitely wasn't in their results. And so um, they they pointed out some reasons why it might be true, but didn't show up in their study, which I think is valid and, and merits further examination because from a theoretical standpoint, like I just, it really fits well into how I think about how students learn. But I have got to grapple with the fact that this evidence is a discrepant from that explanation and I've got to deal with that. Yeah, Making, making my kids sweat over a really complex, abstract model of molecular biological processes might not actually engender an enduring understanding of what's going on in that model later. Uh, and so one of the things that I don't know that they talked about much in their paper, but is on my mind is they only measured some aspects of the learning. So like skill associated with interpreting models, like some of the process skills is like a possible benefit of that sort of, um, that sort of, I'm going to say struggle. Uh, Cause I was definitely all about, I had a couple of Pogel experiences that were in my curriculum that were hard. They, and we spent a lot of time on it and, um, it was it was absolutely struggle process oriented guided inquiry learning or lessons, um, and we we put down a pound of flesh to like spend time with a really hard model, and I felt really good about it. But they didn't understand photosynthetic processes better because of it. I have to grapple with that. They may have gotten better at interpreting models. In fact, I think they did because we didn't have to spend as long every time we returned to to model processing. So there are possible other benefits, but they didn't measure content benefits from that struggle in this study. And I need to spend time with that. Know your students. 
For our second segment, we read Toxic Culture and a Wounded Leader, a Foray into Dysfunctional Educational Community uh, by Ian Mehta, in the, published in the Journal of Cases in Educational Leadership. So it was published in 2020. And we are so happy to be joined by a guest. Jen Bennis is the president of School Marm Advisors, a freelance editor, researcher, and fact checker for academic authors. She's published in the fields of special, gifted, and middle-level education and has personal and professional opinions related to history, gender, and education. And she appeared in previous episode 025. We are so happy to have you back. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. And this particular article hits upon all of my opinion areas. So I will freely share all of my opinions on Ian's piece. So I queued this paper because I wanted to spend this month um, in this segment thinking a little bit about educational leadership, especially as there are conversations about uh, reopening school buildings and what might happen in the next school year. And just there's a lot of things where educational leadership conversations are, are happening. So I wanted to spend some time thinking about that. And so this paper presents uh, a case study that uh, is really a narrative of um, one administrator or one one educator who um, is on a journey into administration and then accepts a new position in um, it's a it's a it's a protected story so these are fictional names but it's a real story about a person who enters a new administrative role and is trying to um, affect the culture of an existing school district and so it tells that story. So this piece is uh, an interesting piece. It's written in a different way than uh, most published literature. I've never read read anything like this before. Uh, and uh, the way it is laid out is a uh, it's sort of a dramatization of a real story where the names have been changed, the places have been changed, the people uh, uh, have been sort of re rebranded a little bit. Uh, and it tells a narrative of an in- from an individual's perspective. This was someone who. Uh, was a teacher for four years, became a principal, and really enjoyed their work as a principal in the community that they were in. Then life circumstances had them move to another region, and then later in their life they were going to be able to come back to that original region um, and uh, enjoy uh, being hired as an uh, assistant superintendent in this area that sort of felt comfortable and home-like to them. Uh, and so this was definitely told heavily from this particular protagonist's perspective. Uh, and uh, this story is about the challenges this protagonist faced when attempting to achieve not only his own professional vision, but the one um that he was hired for from his super in, hiring superintendent's perspective to create sort of a cohesive um, leadership culture that promoted teacher growth. Uh, and he experienced challenges from the culture of the district in doing so. Uh, and then, uh, and then eventually uh, left the district because he was dissatisfied with his experiences. Uh, this paper then does something even Further interesting is that after the narrative, they propose discussion questions to reflect on the narrative uh, as though it is a pre-written professional development activity. So Jack is the protagonist. He's coming in um, as an administrative level position. He's hired by the superintendent, who is Jacob. Uh, He has co-workers, Matt, who is another um, equal level um, administrative person. Uh, Heather, who is another uh, another equal level uh, peer of Jack. 
and then some other players who we may reference eventually. Um, there's just there's a lot in there's a lot in here, which is why um, as I was reading this, I I was thinking we need to have some conversations and those conversations really overlap with what Jen Bennis spends her days thinking about. And so I reached out to her um, sort of spontaneously earlier today. It was like, Hey, are you willing to comment on this paper? And she's like, yeah, I have some thoughts. And I was like, will you tell us those thoughts? And you were very generous to say yes. And so, um, so I appreciate you showing up with like almost no planning. Um, and so honestly, uh, rather than me suggesting anything about where we should start, I'd, I would love to just hear you react. Like, what do you think? Well, the first thing was I had absolutely zero background knowledge about the Journal of Cases and Educational Leadership. Um, I knew nothing about this. And if, if I spent a few minutes reading about the journal to see if this was their typical approach, if they approach other cases in this way, and I didn't get an, I didn't read enough pieces to get a sense. But my first impression is that the author has an incredibly heavy thumb on the scale in terms of how he's telling Jack's story. And one of the things that I do when I read uh, for clients or whatever case may be is I look for, I don't want to call it a bias, but I look for the author's sense of language. And one of the things that I noticed is that this particular author, he talks about gossip. He talks about the things that the woman administrator does and how she uh, at one point he used a verb to describe how she said something where it's very clearly set up in such a case in terms of Jack is clearly meant to be the hero of this particular piece. And one of the pieces where I got really frustrated and where I had very strong opinions is that in the discussion guide, which I've never seen attached to an article before, this was all very new to me. The third discussion question says explicitly that Jack had been deraced, declassed, and a few other things on how the author deliberately did not cue the reader as to his race. But I'm wondering why he didn't degender Jack. Why not use Jack as short for Jack or Jacqueline? Because the gender dynamics in this piece are just heavy, heavy handed. And I don't know why, if he took the effort to derace him, to derace Jack, why not just degender the leader? That way they could truly remove gender identity as a variable. So I don't know why the author didn't do that. Uh, yeah, that's a, so I, I literally, I got about 20% of the way into this paper and, um, I thought about your comments from our last conversation about uh, the glass escalator because it is it is laid out so verbatim in Jack's story. Four years as a classroom teacher, immediately moved into um, administration and then the youngest principal in the system at like 26. And so I was like, that's a little on the nose. Like that's that is so obviously that thing. Yes. And the fact that when he goes back, how he... A quote, plus Jack had a bit of a connection he hoped to leverage. In other words, Jack was saying, I want to get on the glass escalator and I know how to do it. He was already on the glass escalator in his description of his previous progress. He's like, I had a relationship with this pre-existing colleague and we hung out, we went to social gatherings and we played sports together and we just had this really close relationship. And like, that that's literally part of the narrative, right? It, that's literally part of the narrative. And so as I was reading that, I was thinking, okay, I, 
this is this is a connection I think that I'm making, but what's like what do I know about? It? I don't actually remember seeing very much about a description of Jack's identities. So I literally had to do a document search um, and re- <laughs> realize, oh, it's not it's not explained. I oh okay, so it's such a in my mind if we're going to understand a story especially a story that I feel like is really, really clearly influenced by, by gender. And I suspect probably by other identities as well, although I don't know them about Jack, the way it's presented that I it's for me, I think that even the de the de-identifying makes it easy to ignore some important pieces of the story. And I think that they were ignored. Yeah. To revisit the idea of the glass escalator, yeah, so the the general concept, it came from an author named uh, Christine Williams, and her premise came out in the early 90s. And what she is saying is that when men step into a profession, and she focused primarily on nursing and teaching, they're more likely to rise to the lengths to administration because of the network they create as being the only man. So, you know, the boys club and it's human nature for people who are members of a group to find each other in a community. But the reality of education is that there are more likely to be men in administration. So men are more likely to reach down to another man and help him up than they are to help up teachers up that track. One of the key pieces about the glass escalator is that future research has shown it doesn't apply equally to all men. It doesn't apply to men of color. It also doesn't apply to men who may be, uh, for lack of a better word, lack hallmarks of traditional masculinity. So perhaps gay men, men who are, you know, transgender men, it doesn't apply to men necessarily who don't fit a particular archetype of masculinity. So it's not a universal experience for all men. And because the author of this piece used the word partner, we don't know if part of what the tensions that Jack is dealing with is that his colleagues are reading him as a gay man and that is influencing some of the things that are happening. So on one hand, the article tries to identify him, but also ignores some of the tensions that are going on. And I just to kind of re stress that piece around gender in the piece, um, Matt was a jerk, Heather gossips. So even when presenting the tensions that Jack is facing in this community, the author is gendering the behaviors of the administrators around Jack. And we're led to believe that Jack is this wounded hero who's facing this toxic environment, but the author is using language to poison the reader against the environment. And I don't, I don't understand how that's supposed to help people who want to be leaders. I don't understand why the author did that. My understanding of this journal and this piece is uh, it's written for to be used by like le- educational leadership programs. So future principals um, are going to be reading the, these sorts of um, case studies to practice the skill, the, the skills and, and build the tools that they will use in their departments is just an assumption that I'm making. And so the interpreting this case without some of what I think are the important details within the case, I think is going to be preparing them to use the wrong skills or ineffective skills. Like I think trying to sanitize the story is emphasizing some other components, but is overlooking some of the important characteristics of the problem. 
I would be mortified if I learned that a teacher, a principal friend of mine read this piece. Um, the one particular thing that I want to kind of point out that's a red flag is on page 22, Jack and Heather are meeting in Jack's office. Jack says, is there a problem? Heather says, no. Jack says, are you sure? Heather says, yes, I am sure. And then he demands that she says what he wants her to say. And when she, and then she leaves and is described as storming off. It's just this textbook example of just banging through any attention to build a relationship of consent of if you don't do if, if and he's gendered as a man, he hand pronouns. If this woman doesn't do what I want her to do, I'm not going to let up until she does it. That I, there's another piece of this that we haven't mentioned yet that is um, the way the leadership team is interacting with the teachers in the building, um, which which are predominantly female. And like the like overwhelming disrespect and suppression and distrust in how they're interacting with the teachers, the leadership team is male, like Jacob and Matt and the way that they're in the way that they're carrying on the way that they're treating the feedback and the just the the people who are in this faculty demands attention like I, it d- demands discussion it's it... I, yeah um so this is this is this is interesting because one of the things that i think this paper is attempting to do is say that if you have a emotionally insensitive uh, perspective of your employees in terms of, uh, well, they should just do their job and deliver the curriculum, and I can't believe they're incompetent. And if you're not sensitive to the, to the recognition that they say, we'd like to improve his teaching, and here are the things that we need to do it, um, that, that perspective is villainous counterproductive to growth as a district is 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 problematic that i think that hype that sort of i don't even want to say hyperbolic because even this is reskinning of somebody's real story right but that that there is value in attempting to shed light on that as a mistake and so we would you know we can we we can validly critique this storytelling from the embedded perspectives and potential biases that are in it while also acknowledging that treating our employees or treating our colleagues or treating teachers in a dismissive dismissive fashion so that we don't meet their professional needs is also inappropriate so though jack's perspective may have contradictions and is overlooking dynamics and is definitely a bias from a particular perspective, we also have to recognize that what he is critiquing is also a problem systemically in education. What you're saying made me realize that if this had been written in the first person, if the gist of this piece had been from the position of I, Jack, I saw Heather slam the door. I heard gossip about this. I feel wounded by this. It would read very, very differently than this omnipotent, I think that's the right POV, like third person omnipotent, Heather's the gossip, Matt's a jerk, poor Jack is wounded. 
And I think we could have gotten to some really, really interesting things about how personal identity skews our understanding of events. There's a difference between intent and impact, you know, um, intention and the impact on someone. So the whole way he handled Heather, quote unquote, handled Heather, there's a lot to talk about there about when you say to somebody, do you have a problem with me? And they say, no, you let it go. Like you figure out how to let it go. (laughs) And that could be talked about in a leadership class. What do you do if you and your colleague aren't friends? How do you find a healthy work environment in a district office when two people aren't collegial or you can, uh, what's it, what's the difference? Those are two words, collegial and um, congenial. Yeah. You can be collegial without being friends, without being congenial. And there's nothing wrong with that. So Jack's expectation that his workplace would be like a second family. I don't think that's ever said explicitly, but it's implied. (sighs) Why? I don't understand. So yeah, if this piece had been written in first person, it would make for a fantastic text to analyze about Jack's perceptions of the world. But because the author acts as if he knows for sure Heather is a gossip, that Heather did this, it skews the reader. Also, if it had been in first person, it would have really, in like big, bold, highlighted, underlined, uh, re-emphasized the point that it makes about vulnerability in the analysis section. That uh, teaching and even leadership positions can be very, like require vulnerability to be effective and to grow in those positions and so by dramatizing i'm dramatizing yeah that by doing that uh with the narrative we actually take a step away from vulnerability which i think in the analysis section i agree with them i think that you're right this should be a a component to teaching and a component to leadership and a component to the education environment and let's also talk about the audience. Uh, if this audience, if this is kind of, a, it feels like it's packaged as a professional development activity for administrators. So is there like a white male gaze assumption that the people reading this are going to be white male gaze administrators and this is what the stories that they need to hear to make progress toward meeting the needs of their teachers? Is that what is happening? Um, I don't know. I think it definitely is. I think because especially when we talk about the analysis of Jack and is the way the author has written this, um, they should describe how they perceive Jack, including his ethnicity, race, uh, spatial background, sexual orientation, other forms of identity. And so how they perceive. So he's asking the readers to race Jack. And if we wanted to perhaps shift the lens, we could say, well, if this is being read in a room full of all white future administrators, and one of them says, well, I think Jack is a black man because he did this. It that just seems, I don't, I don't under, as I keep struggling with what it is the author hoped to accomplish by removing race and who exactly, who was his, who was he picturing was going to be reading this article? Uh, and I, to, on that, on that note, uh, I because it was deraced, I did imagine every character is white when I read it. When I went through this narrative, every character was right. And your proposals, like, well, the situation is different if the demographics are different. Um, I hadn't considered that yet. 
I hadn't considered that. So uh, I, 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 yeah, I see what you're saying. That is he. What was his goal? And whatever it was, was it met by doing it this way? And this would be different if the author her, themselves was a person of color, was a uh, an openly. Uh, openly a person with a disability, if they were neurotypical, if they were trans. So the way in which the author has approached the scenario has been shaped by his, I'm confident by his race and his identity. And I suspect his geography as well. This show, we, we try to make it a show about shoulds. If I imagine myself or anybody else, a possible listener who finds themselves in a, a position of leadership of any kind, um, and they are in a position where they're trying to navigate or even impact a toxic culture. But I'd love to get some, I'd love to, I'd love to offer a should, or at least a follow-up resource for somebody who is interested in thinking about impacting a toxic culture. So I think the first thing is that we should not mistake toxicity for racism. If a workplace is if there are racist actions happening, it's not toxic, it's racist. And if there are, if there is sexism that is happening inside this leadership team, there are explicitly sexist things happening. It's not just toxicity. It is, it's related to gender dynamics. It is about sexism. So I think the should has to be, to be thoughtful about when we label something as toxic, what is it we are saying is toxic? Because he is saying Heather not responding the way he wanted is toxic. That's not toxic. That's him being belligerent. That's him being, you know, not taking a woman at her word. It, the quote that kind of came to mind to me, there's a, a passage in Robin DeAngelo's writing and it, you know, Robin DeAngelo, there's always pros and cons to every text that we read, but she talks about an instance, an experience she had with a friend of hers who's a black woman. And her friend said to her, never forget that I'm a black woman, but also it should have no bearing on our relationship that I am a black woman. Never forget it, but also ignore it at the same time. And what she's talking about how is you cannot derace someone in service to building a relationship because race is part of that relationship. And I think the should has to be, if you feel as if something is toxic, we have to spend time unpacking what it is, is at the heart of that toxicity and not just say, well, it's because Heather is, and I'm confident the B word was floated around to describe Heather, whether it was in a first draft of the article or that's how we thought about her. She was the B word. Um, not just say, well, this is because Heather is a B word. It's in that makes the workplace toxic, but we should describe what we're seeing in specific terms. Empower each other. Because the preceding segment was generally critical of the paper, we provided an advanced copy of this episode to author Dr. Met and the editorial board of JCEL with an opportunity to comment. You can find their full response letter and follow-up materials on the webpage for this episode at twopintplc.com. I will share this quote, which represents their group's response in part, and I quote, The cases are intended to stimulate discussion and debate rather than have determinative right-v-wrong conclusions or interpretations. 
JCEL cases are used by university faculty for classroom discussion, K-12 teachers and leaders for professional development sessions, and to raise their thinking about critical issues relevant for their praxis. The cases are not designed nor intended to represent empirical research that is often used as a standard, parentheses, or referred to as, quote, case study research, close quote, end parentheses, in other academic journals. With this particular case, the intent from the author's perspective was to provide a case for readers to question privilege of institutions with elite status, the rules of privilege, parentheses, think of the recent reflections of Dina Simmons at Yale or Cornell West at Harvard, close parenthesis, and the wounds leaders often carry as they move through their careers, end quote. How was the beer? Yeah, we should talk about beer because the the description includes like a licorice element, which I assumed to be like a black licorice element, like an anise kind of a flavor, which made me nervous because I don't like the anise flavor. And yet I didn't I didn't have any problem with it, nor did I even particularly notice it in the beer. This tastes like um, an ale to me. We have the same result from a different initial perspective. I love black licorice. I love the anise flavor. I selected this specifically because it advertised itself for having it, and I'm slightly disappointed that I can't pick it out. So, uh, yep, I agree with you. It's not there. Uh, At least not there enough for this palate. Uh, Maybe somebody who's got more uh, receptors on their tongue per, per millimeter can pick it out, but I sure can't. Our beer vizier um, participated in tasting this beer with us. We're so happy that Aaron Matthew was able to play along. And so he's got some comments for us. Yes. He says it's a sweet Belgian style ale with soft berry and dried fruit flavors and honey like sweetness in the aroma and flavor. They linger through a fairly dry finish. Uh, And as it warms up, banana and clove become apparent he says that this beer can teach you what alcohol sweetness brings to a beer along with how warming beer can bring out certain yeast esters hey we thank you for joining us uh, we really appreciate uh, jen bennis thank you for joining us and having a conversation in the second segment um if our listeners enjoyed hearing you and want to consume more of the, what you create or what you write where can they find your material uh, the two best places are first on Twitter. I'm at Jen Binnis, so it's Jen with two N's, B-I-N-I-S, or on my website, which is schoolmarmadvisors.com. And I there have the collection of all my podcasts at History 101, all my history writing, and links to some articles that I've written related race and gender and education. 